It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back, dear listener, to another episode of Ashes to Classics. We're going to talk about a really important and interesting film again. I mean, I want to say, you know, another big deal, but these are all going to be big deals in their own way for the most, like, interesting um, reasons. But we're going to start with breaking news. Um, silent film is in the news, let's say. You know, we're now a very topical podcast. Um, I'm Stephen, of course. David is here. Hello, David. Hello, hello, Stephen. Yeah, uh, it's important. We're going to cover uh, whenever something important with silent films come up, you know, especially as more get rediscovered all the yes. time. You know, it happens uh, more often than you think. Uh, but not today. Not different kind of silent news uh, no, going today on today. is, I guess, rediscovered culturally to some. This may lead to a cultural rediscovery. So Sight and Sound published their once a decade critics and director's list. Um, I've not checked for the director's list for silent films because I haven't been bothered to yet, but I did check through the critics list for silent films because I find that to be a much more interesting list of the state of film and film conversation. And there was a lot of conversation before, so I'm really interested in this process. I know you're not as much, um, but I'm really fascinated by it. And there was a lot of talk before about people thinking that silent films were going to basically go because there was three, I think, in the top 10, at least not the top 12, and people thought that would not be the case anymore. I mean, due to a variety of reasons. One, because that sense of prestige around silent film, which showed that you were a bit special because you'd got to see them. And now, in the, I mean, 10 years, a lot's happened in these last 10 years in terms of availability of film. And now it's so much more easy to see because of YouTube most of the time. Maybe that's there's not the sense to front of putting Man with a Movie Camera on my list because, look, I've seen that. Everyone's like, well, everyone's seen that. Who really cares? But I'm going to go through these silent films on the list and a, a bit of a take on them. So I'm going to start with, in the top ten, number nine, Man with a Movie Camera. Are you a fan of Man with a Movie Camera, David? I love Man with a Movie Camera. Yes, I think I it's hope so. an absolutely phenomenal, revolutionary film. Yeah. It's it's got everything that, you know, you can kind of think of with cinema and it. it's a real expression of the power of, of movie making, I think, and it's it's real uh, testament to that. It's going to really link into our conversation later, actually, about putting a step forward for film of what film can be. And I'm going to talk about that quite disparagingly about today's film, of maybe not setting it up, what this medium can be. I think Man Movie Camera is, I mean, though I have heard a lot about maybe the title is like a, a mistranslation, is not as like weirdly gendered um, as the title is. We'll get to that, because there is um, a trans of Movie Camera is a film that came out a few years ago, I think. So that title's been taken um, and reused. At number 10, not a silent film. But linked to our conversation two years ago, Singing in the Rain, which has as a key plot point the transition from silent to sound and deals with the changing technology. And actually, I would say that I need to revisit it because it's been a while, kind of like frames talkies in a kind of like negative or inconvenient light in a tiny way. There's a, 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 some key scenes that do that get some fun out of it. Tiny way might be underselling it a bit there. <laughs> I, I, I do think of the scene especially where you've got Gene Kelly doing, moving the doing tree bit. around. Yeah, there's like the whole bit of the early transitionary point. There's, there's a very specific reference to a John Gilbert film 
that was kind of a big instrumental in building up this myth about how he was like a terrible sound performer. That yeah. wasn't really the case. It's just about how his acting style turns. It's is a scene where he's it's just like, oh, I love you, I love you. And he's, he's saying that to Lena and you know the camera, and it, and it plays on screen, and everyone laughs. And that's a real anecdote from uh, his first John Gilbert's first sound film, His Glorious Night. So yeah, definitely paints it in a, in a kind of negative, cheeky way, and mm. is also I'd say big in kind of pushing the narrative that the jazz singer was what you know revolutionized and was the first talking film, and uh, that you know there's there's a little more yeah. to that story than that. It's, it's I've never seen the jazz singer. I mean, I, I, you can probably guess why I've never seen the jazz singer. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I've <laughs> I've seen it. I will see it at some point. I just I just never really want to to watch blackface when I can help it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this big big surprise, not a talking film. It's a silent movie with singing in it. Oh, interesting. Okay, then it becomes more interesting to me. Um, though obviously, obviously there are elements of it hugely, hugely an issue. Um, yeah, <laughs> I will say the amount of blackface and brownface on the sign sound list has dropped incredibly. Um, a lot of films. Very good off. thing. Always a good yeah, thing. Always a very good thing. Like, I, am I sad that Lawrence of Arabia is gone? Yes, I am. That film is astonishing. But am I really going to bemoan the lack of a brownface movie? I guess not. It's nice that now we do have so many more like black and brown filmmakers on the list as opposed to we had in the past i think more films with black and brown face than representation behind the camera i would not be surprised by that whatsoever yeah probably um at 11 sunrise which i absolutely adore and i'm presuming you do as well i like sunrise a lot there are there are actually a lot of films that have a similar theme like that in terms of uh, silent films in particular i, I could think of mm. three including sunrise that are like a story about a, a faithful man who is led astray yes. by a conniving woman. And yeah. all, all from the <laughs> same I mean, when year. When you say it like that, now I sound bad. That's true. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. I was just maybe the best dog in cinema. You know, best, best, best cinema dog. The dog in Sunrise. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. But but there's a lot of similar films like it. I, I love uh, A Place in the Sun I, yeah. from 1951. Just a bit more than Sunrise. It's a very similar film in terms of uh, its, its story but yeah as far as visually expressive yes. silent films in particular its soundtrack being one of the kind of go-to examples of the match ones with a uh, sound on disc uh it's it's really uh, terrific and uh, one of murnau's best films yeah no i i I really love it, um, but my love of it, again, I mean, we must always remember that our, our loves of things are guided by our wider experience of things, so my, my lack of reference points for Sunrise may make me appreciate it more, and I'm sure if I'd seen the things you would see, I'd be like, ah, it's like that, it's like that, like that. Um, no, I mean, a lot of people love Sunrise even more than I do, you know, so, again, it's consistently I mean, on the top of this list for a good reason, I just, uh, of of the ones I named, of like yeah. the three that are, you know, like like that, it's probably the best. Maybe I like Flesh and the Devil a little bit more, okay. but it's it's conservative messaging is <laughs> a, a very hefty. Like, like I remember watching that film, I was like, man, this this movie is like does not like promiscuous women, I guess. <laughs> and so then the next film is a silent film from the sound era. So therefore, we're talking once again about how these things don't just like end and reawaken. One of my favorites. I I mean, Mayor Darren making her way onto the list is always a joy. I really love Mayor. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big experimental film person. Um, Mayor Darren is such such a key voice in that. The Lynch influence is absolutely yeah. undeniable from Mayor Darren, and and it, it reminds me when I watched um went back and watched early Kenneth Anger films, and I'm not sure if you've seen or not, and I was just like I have I have seen some Kenneth Anger. Films. Oh, nice! And you watch the stuff that Kenneth Anger's making, and like so early, and you're like you could have told me this came out. 20, 30 years later. And I'd be like, yeah, I would completely believe you. And Mayor Darren is that. You're like, this came out in the 40s? What? So yeah, Meshes of the Afternoon, which you can probably just find on YouTube. Um, just yeah. 
an astonishing short, one of the just coolest, like, ethereal, just, like, weird, like, genuinely kind of, like, in-your-bones kind of weird, not, like, affected, not strange for the sake of it, just, like, using cinematic technique to convey the uncanny in just utterly entrancing way, just so foundational for weird cinema for me. Love Meshes of the Afternoon so mm-hmm. much, so glad it's there. I think it's the only short film on the list, though, now, right? Yeah, like, we... big big feature bias here yeah 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 i mean there are there are two things that you could argue with television um but yeah this is the the only um short film i think i'd have to double check but i went through and that's what i found at 21 um the passion of joan of arc or passion de jean arc jean d'arc um which we will talk about later you tell me yep yep that is a film that will come up on this podcast i'm gonna say just as a spoiler now because i have seen it before the best face acting in any film ever that is typically, you know, the the take. I believe. I don't think that is in any way controversial. Yeah, um, I love that movie. Absolutely adore that movie. Do you, Do you have a preferred speed at which to watch it? I know there, there's different versions. I look forward to finding out. I watched the speed of the one that was on Mubi. I think when it was played there. I believe that's how I watched it. Um, at twenty three, not a silent film. So I apologize, but you're going to know why I said it. Um, Jacques okay. Tati's Playtime. Ah, yes. You see, I mean, come uh, on. Yep, that a counts. successor. That kind of yeah. counts, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have, I've, I've got a shelf in my my collection that's like silent films. Yeah, and the the, the Tati box set is in there as well Aye. because it just fits. It goes it with it. I I I like to put those movies on whenever people come visit, you know, for holidays because they're great background stuff and uh, they're good exposure because these, you know, most people who come mm. over will never watch silent films otherwise. And they're always interesting. People are always interested in them. And it's it's very easy to kind of come in and out of and still be impressed yeah. by or interested by. And, you know, Tati is very much in the same lineage yeah. there and so accessible. So, yeah, he definitely, Though, you know, I, I, I'm, I will I'm contradict myself because I'll also say that Playtime is a musical at the same time. <laughs> I think Playtime very much is a musical in which <laughs> Absolutely. The, the city and the sounds of soundscape. But in the same way, there can be silent film musicals. That is a thing. I mean, the, the jazz singer, arguably. Um, it's but, a great example of how silent film, you yeah. know, in quotations, could have evolved with the yes. advent of sound to yeah. still retain its storytelling prowess. You know, it didn't have to be without sound it, you know we yes. only call it silent in the in the retrospect yeah and in pejorative sense usually yeah i like that it's like silent cinema as a language as a mode as opposed to as a distinct form um there, i believe i believe coming on the list is a silent film that was made at the time with sound oh uh, wow you'll, you'll have to tell me though is it is it next is it it's, it's, it's by a certain well, mustachioed man well number 36 is city lights Yes, that's exactly the one I was referring to. Oh wow! Okay, I mean, I, I, so I City, love Lights, City Lights. I would have put City Lights um, came out in 1931, okay. and Chaplin created it with a soundtrack, and it does so consciously, and it plays with that idea. There's a scene very early on where you know, in the very beginning, they're unveiling the statue, and yeah. you know, they have the people coming up to the mic to give the dedication, oh, and yeah. instead of talking, they have this like kazoo of sound effect like there's a bit of that in modern times as well isn't there there's a bit of like they yep. pull they pull levers and like there's like a, a line of dialogue in modern times if i remember correctly like the machine says something there's a couple of pieces of dialogue in modern times because there's a like a, a boss coming yeah. on the big screen and he's like get back to work and all that and all, all the sound all the dialogue comes out of the machine it's part of the commentary of the film oh, love, which is very that. wonderful and again two great examples of silent films that were made as silent films but with sound involved like mm. from conception that's incorporated into the film itself they are the films there's no alternate soundtrack 
like even when I went to uh, go see City Lights in, in yeah. the theater locally here, oh, uh, they, they didn't play a newly composed soundtrack. They played the Chaplin soundtrack because that's part of the film. Absolutely awesome. Um, and Modern Times is at 78. I mean, for me, Modern Times is is, 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 is my Chaplin. I would put that above. But obviously the list is an aggregate. I mean, I agree. I agree with you. Modern Times is just I, as, utterly spectacular. As, as as brilliant as City Lights is, Agreed. Uh, I think I give Modern Times the edge a little bit just for that that very potent social commentary. Yeah, I think the singularity of it. I, I, I like the way that City Lights develops. This is kind of City Lights podcast. I like the way that it develops, but it it has like a Shaggy Dog like story to it that it goes and goes and goes, yeah. which is endearing and lovely, but it's not as like as as pretentious as I sound. The thematic purity of Modern Times, I really really appreciate. It is a film about something, and it shows that comedy can be serious and hilarious, um, which is always like. Many of my favourite films are funny as well as thematic. Speaking of laugh riots, not really. Um, at 54, Battleship Potemkin. You a fan? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's Battleship Potemkin. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. And no. that, that's probably my that's probably my controversial opinion there. That is controversial. I, I adore Battleship Potemkin. It's so cool. It's a bit of my own sensibilities, the, the kind of more... How do, how do you put it there? I guess the the collective sense of of uh, filmmaking that you've got there with yeah. some of the Soviet films yeah. more about making the subject about a larger picture as opposed to about individuals hard, harder harder for rally. me to to latch on to. I forget you're an individualist and I'm a collectivist. I guess that's the key difference, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess, <laughs> I, but I, I, you know, it's got some of the most you know incredible sequences. Still, can't deny the Odessa steps. How nope. you know it, incredible that that finale is, and you know the filmmaking up until then, and you know the messaging, the 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 spurt of color that's used. Um, that's something that's going to come up. I'm going to mention that in a yeah. later podcast. But yeah, uh, I've I've seen it twice. I saw it on the the big screen. I think cool. that was was that earlier this year. Might have been. And yeah, I, I went and I was like, maybe this will change my mind. And I was like. No, I feel exactly the same. Oh. I, it's it's good. It's, it's it's a good movie. It's really, really good. Um, <laughs> now, um, speaking of really, really good, this is... I use the phrase my favourite movies a lot. This is, like Sing in the Rain, this next film, I have a list of favourite favourites of, of, of 100. Sing in the Rain is on that, and so is this film. Um, Buster Keaton, Sherlock Jr. Oh, yes. I was, I was going to guess a different one, but Sherlock Jr. is also one of my absolute favourite films. Oh, uh, just yes. like an exemplar of cinema yeah uh, I, I wrote a piece on it for the website so ah, you know that will be in the, in the description i'm sure um and you can yeah click just and read again that. from 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 the singularity of the the transitionary sequence where he's you know going in 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 the uh he goes into the movie screen and then the changing of the scenes around him to just the sense like the uh, the concept of like projecting yourself like astrally into the mm. movies and and it's as an escape and as an inspiration for you know how to live your life effectively i i, I think it's ex both emotionally and technically this this perfect summation of the power yeah. of cinema i mean Sherlock jr was the film where buster keaton finally like made sense to me like i i appreciated mm. his way to work but that, then i was like oh yeah this is absolute genius and it's, it's the one i wanted the rest to be and it, it resonated so strong with me i just thought it was utterly wonderful at 67 another on my favorite list um for its langs metropolis it's good it's Again, it's come up a couple times now on this podcast, and will definitely come up later in some capacity. Yes. It's maybe my favorite film, just in it's, general. It's good. It's very, 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 very good. Is it very simplistic in its messaging? Yes, yeah, that's maybe fine. even maybe even a little misguidedly so. But yeah, true. damn, is it incredibly well re realized and oh. 
you know, paragon of, of, of visual splendor. I mean, da- I, mean I, I dare, I dare, I dare to make links across to contemporary film, which I know is a, is a bugbear of some of us. Um, <laughs> but it, it's part of that kind of film that I want more films to be like, of that just like, this is so much bigger and wilder than it needs to be. Like some of those giant sets at the beginning, it reminds me of like Eight and a Half, the Fleeny film, which is, I, can, yep. I guess, not obviously not contemporary, of that sense of, this fake film in a film is so avant-garde and so outrageous. Like, you just did not need to go as much. And I obviously have not seen this film yet, and I may not even like it, but when I watch trailers for that um, new Giselle movie, of uh, Babylon, I'm just like, this. I don't know if this looks good, but it looks big in the way that films don't usually go big. Um, and that links back to like Metropolis and me being like, this is, this is grand at a different scale than what I expect a big film to be nowadays. I'm not quite sure if that makes sense, but it's a different approach to spectacle and scale, which I think cinema doesn't offer as much nowadays. Certainly. And the, the scale and spectacle of Metropolis is f- from every angle, like from a yeah. technical to just like a, a person, like there's just, you know, it's a big cast that you've got for some scenes, lots of crowds and yeah. stuff, to also just the, the ambition of the story itself. You know, it's really like big stakes, big world that you've got that, it, again, it, it feels like many modern films, many big blockbusters are often aiming for still. Yes. But as far as like early examples of something that really creates it from from a relatively small sense, again, like through the model work and everything, and even though it was one of the most expensive films produced at, yeah. at that time and and failed spectacularly. <laughs> Haven't we all? Which I think is just, again, like a, a testament to how certain films you know can influence and continue on despite their their initial run that's one again one of the main reasons i love metropolis so much is that it it endured in spite of everything yeah but it's, it's just got this kind of like i don't know to sound very pretentious it's kind of like bacchanalian like grandeur to it it's just there's this like wonderful just like excess um that just exudes off the screen absolutely wonderful modern times at 78 should be a lot higher and finally at 95 uh buster keaton's the general which um, the less said about the better it's you know it's it's good Buster Keaton good uh you know it's got an issue still and <laughs> I, I guess we haven't quite expunged our Confederate apologia from yeah. you know, our, our our favorites here good uh, train but... sequences good train sequences you want to see a guy yeah, sit on Keaton, that bit of a train Keaton that goes trains and you know can he roll down a hill before a train he can there you go here, here's the thing here, there's a, there's a bunch of other Keaton films that have great train sequences yes there's a there's there's a short film he did at the end of his career where it's just him on like a little train cart like running across canada it's I mean, great many great train films exist train quest is a film that you can watch for example <laughs> um do not watch that and don't even look it up listener um I, I do like train cinema though um i'm no strangers to the train um so as we get back to our main topic then that was our, our topical silent film but before we before we move on actually i wanted to ask do you feel like that's a fair representation of silent cinema on on this best of list of all time Oh, God, I should have a, a quicker response to that question. That's just, a, I don't feel there's no correct answer to that question. Because, I mean, I the thing that I like about the Science Sound List is the previous ones will always exist. So it's, yep. it's, it's not like it's not like the IMDb Top 250 or, those, or the Letterboxd Top 250 where it's constantly replacing itself. For me, it is more valuable as a resource of the people who are self-made tastemakers of the industry, so the critics, of how they view the status of the at the moment. So therefore, I don't really... I'm only ever interested by omission and addition. I'm not really bemoaning it unless it reflects something like horror about society, which it can do sometimes. And the there's more something than I thought there would be. I think it's a nice percentage. I think it's a, quite a diverse selection 
of silent films so maybe it's not diverse in terms of like them being made but it, like the different things they can do i think it, it's there's a bit more to it than maybe i'd have expected um there's some really interesting things there i think and it's hard for me to know because to me they're all very very known but then i'm also very very deep into this like i've been surprised <laughs> the amount of people that don't know what gene dealman is for example so i'm too deep into film to i guess understand they seem like very known films maybe apart from mesh of the afternoon but lovely lovely choices i mean are, are you bemoaning it are you disappointed um i'm not saying I, i'm disappointed i have some interesting thoughts on the list okay. in general that, that i also wanted to add here uh because i'm also seeing again the, the reactions to the list are uh, you know all over the place in, in general from all sorts yeah. of kind of circles you brought up gene dealman as well oh, and pretty the, much the... the greatest film ever made so i'm glad it's on the list because it may actually be the greatest film ever made so could not be happy about that it's it's a big change certainly, and yeah. I think this list has shown a lot of big changes from previous year, and it is interesting to kind of track that those huge changes. Over changes the years. You know, Vertigo was at one, now it's at two. Citizen Kane was at two, yeah. now it's at three. <laughs> Sweeping huge, monumental. Changes. And oh, Tokyo Story was at three, now it's at four. Massive changes. But no, I'm joking. Apart from that, there has actually been quite quite a shake up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I have seen some sentiments, especially from silent film sections on online, that are surprisingly loud. Not- the silent film sections. Yeah, yeah, not 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 as happy with it. Certainly, some areas were because it is important to note that uh, how many how many entries do we have again here on the list? So it's a, it's a hundred films. It might be more than because there's a lot of joint ones, but I think it does still go to a hundred. I know the critics, sorry, the directors list is more than a hundred because there's too many ties on it. Okay. I think. But I believe you said there was there's ten here, right? Yeah, I think so. Ten so, ten silent films. Yeah. Okay, so ten silent yeah. films out of a hundred, ten percent. Not not too bad, but I guess versus the percentage of how many silent, how much silent film actually represents the history of cinema. I mean, and of now. that, we've got two Chaplins and two Keatons. Exactly, that's another thing. I was like, so when you say it, it's varied, I'm like, yeah, no, you. I mean, you are. It right. Could be more varied. Could be more varied. I'm sure there's also heavy American bias in there as well. Yeah, because I mean, even with with Lang and Murnau, obviously there is the the cultural transition there, which makes those more interesting filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, looking at it now on paper, literally on paper, because I've written out, it is very much being like, <laughs> the Americans and the Soviets make silent film. <laughs> um, turns out. Yeah, yeah. So it, it could be more diverse, but also it goes back into, you know, how much survives, you know? So yeah. again, like how much of that actual percentage, those 40 years of silent cinema, we can actually represent on the list and how much, but you know, I would have loved to see some earlier stuff as well. Like again, because we tend Melies to- Melies would have been great. Uh, yeah, exactly. Melies, like I could think of a number of Melies films that could qualify, which is kind of what I was thinking when we brought up how little short representation is on here as well. There's all that early history as well that could be represented. And by continuing to just say film history starts at 1920, we're ignoring yeah. a lot of the great innovations in artistry that comes up until then. But there is also to an extent how much more influential and how much yeah. more impactful films from 1920 onward are. I will mm. I will say as well that uh, there's more on silent films here on this list than there was 10 years ago. There's an additional silent film than there was 10 years ago. There's only oh, nine wow. Yeah, so it's because there's been there's been some some chopping and changing, which is interesting. Then okay, so we've actually got a, a growth in, but quite quite traditional, I guess. Even if it shows the different things the the movement or the medium can do. But I also think it's important because, as we stated on the first podcast we did here, the, uh, a list like this is exactly how I got into silent film. I saw yes. important film listed, you know, and it was like, oh, I need to go and watch this because it's important, and that's why it's. 
important to see these other representations yeah. being put onto the list and being varied up and you know more spread out as well because future cineasts are going to be looking at this list this specific list as their guiding point to yes. getting deeper into cinema and so seeing that greater variance of voices and representation here it's going to matter a lot yeah. uh you know w- would i love even more silent film representation on here yeah sure but there's also a lot more contemporary representation that needs to be taken into account too so that's why lists like this mm. are really wonderful and i do think that this is a a good example a good starting place for a lot of yeah. silent film all of the films listed that that you've gone over here all 10 of them are great films that yes. need to be seen and the general as well by yeah <laughs> yeah what would you replace the general with? I guess if you had if you had to pick a silent film, what would you? Pick oh, Caligari. Where, where is Caligari? I mean, Caligari is great example. Great. Yep. That's again on my, on my top list. Um, the last thing I'll say about this list, um, because we've talked a lot about it, I, I apologize, listener, but I hopefully you found it interesting. Um, is that so? Let's say hypothetically that this this came up in my um, professional life today, and I was talking to to a class about it, and I will say there were a few students there who were really excited because they'd seen Moonlight and they'd seen Portrait of Fire and loved those films and were really excited they're on this list and now uh, invest in this list because they're like, oh, that's on this list of these kind of films and therefore they can sit this out. So if you are one of the people that's bemoaning the inclusion of recent films, first of all, what? Why? Second of all, people have seen those films, like recent like converts to to this is like a an obsession um they are more known they're in conversation and they will get guided to these places and as david's proved these lists are always starting points of like are the best films on this list no like many most of my favorite films are not on this list but you find that one known film and then you go ah oh, the director made this as well and that influenced that and that and that and you spiral out and you find the whole world of cinema cinema is discovery and this is a, a jumping off point to discovery the ultimate thing for me as well is that Every list is arbitrary. Mm. Like th- th- this list is no more important than the list that somebody made the, the, of the letterbox aggregate list, you know, or the IMDb one. Yeah, I used all of those. I used all yeah. of those lists, and I did not weigh any one more than the other necessarily. You know, if I googled like the best noir films, and it was some film, you know, list from like Slate or whatever, I used that too, and I went off of it. And it's like these are the films that people consider important, you know, and who those people are is not necessarily important why is this british list more important than the afi list well i mean i, I can i can give you the answer there um, because the afi <laughs> only link only only listed american movies um that's true that's true <laughs> but, this, but is, as... this, is, this is global cinema and it is a collation of worldwide critics so it is not it is made by british magazine but it is a poll of global critics right i suppose my point was more so like you know it is is this list this this we give it more gravitas True. you know based on who who is selected here and, and there is a significance to that but ultimately it's it's accent you know, bias it, isn't it david it's because when this list speaks it speaks of a plummy rp british accent and therefore we take it seriously exactly, exactly. Um, and, and that's why you read it off enough exactly so speaking of elitism um shakespeare <laughs> yes yes the, yeah. everyone's favorite topic <laughs> yeah i can i give I, I, so i have been unsurprisingly like pigeonholed as the Shakespeare person, which makes sense because <laughs> I've taught Shakespeare for eight years. But what I will start with is I am not a Shakespeare person. I, though I do love Shakespeare. I love many Shakespeare plays, but I am persistently the person that rails against the persistent inclusion at the exclusion of other things of Shakespeare and curriculums of, we have this law in the UK where if you do English literature, which you have to do legally, you have to study a Shakespeare play for your general standardized exam. That is the end of school exam. 
the last time you have two English literature. And it is ridiculous to me that we are forcing students to do Shakespeare. Um, and it has actually destroyed a love of Shakespeare that could be possible if natural. And there are so many great playwrights, great literary figures over time that people discover for themselves and love. And Shakespeare's become a meme and is disappointingly so. What I'll also say, linked to this film, is to always remember that Shakespeare was derided a bit at the time for being of the kind of heritage that was not seen as for a playwright. So he was. there was lies made about him. One, there's the ongoing conspiracy that he didn't write his works. What that comes from is because he did not have the education. He was not, you know, the Oxbridge. Um, he did not have that classical education, not a grand tour, etc. There was a lie written about him that he had no Latin or Greek. He writes in Latin and Greek at points in his plays. Clearly he had an understanding of the idea of being like, this common man from base stock wrote a great play. How impressive. Um, which is not really true. He was, you know, still from a, like a, an educated family from a decent position. But this Shakespeare idea of it being the highest of art is ridiculous because these were the plays for everybody at the time because it's pop entertainment. And why I like this Richard III, and we'll get to this later, is because it kind of feels like that. It has this wonderful feel of like plucky amateur theatre that I really, really enjoy. I'm going to get back to later. This is the most accessible Shakespeare I've ever seen in my life. It is simplicity to the point of, of brilliance it is like spark note shakespeare it is it is really really cool it makes shakespeare fun silly a bit cartoonish again in the ways that exist in shakespeare and is often lent away from it's not the only thing about shakespeare but it's often devalued and diminished and i love that this one leans into it and you've got little like guy in the corner of a screen hiding behind pillars and going out and doing evil things ah yeah i really i really mm-hmm. enjoyed richard the third david i really really enjoyed it oh i'm glad i'm glad to hear that because I'll definitely want to get into that because it is, it's, it's a very fun play. And I think that's not a word that we often associate with Shakespeare, fun, entertaining. And it's very, almost kind of like pulpy in a way. Yeah, hugely. And we don't often think about that. And, you know, I think that's something I've had to learn as well about Shakespeare. Because again, like you said, growing school system, it's all very stodgy, very Mm. kind of boring, very uh, almost kind of like prosaic writing, ironically. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And so when, when I was in school, I'm trying to remember, like, we, we went over, like, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Yeah. And I liked Hamlet. I liked Hamlet's Hamlet a lot. Good. I remember reading that. And it's because Hamlet has just a really good plot. It's really easy yeah. to, to get invested in, in that and everything that's kind of going on. But everything else, I kind of wasn't about and, mm. I, and I couldn't care about. But I'm a big trolley it was later... fan, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. It was it was through later films that I ended up seeing, I think starting with, like, some of the Wells ones and stuff, that I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting yeah you know and there's a lot of like machinations and then once we get to the more kind of like historical ones and and seeing how those are, are told and stuff again like richard the third you're like oh wow there's actually a lot more like like the political intrigue was yes. kind of what ended up pulling me in a lot more and i'm like oh okay so there's actually so much more going on here that's way interesting and then once once i've got that then i can start getting my wrapping my head around the language and appreciating that more so, yeah. and some of the the cheekiness to it, especially. Yeah, very that's, much. That's so. another. That's another big thing, you know. Is like you know all of the innuendo. Shakespeare's that's often very laden. naughty. Shakespeare likes to he a lot of jokes for those standing at the front who have paid nothing to be there and are very very drunk. A lot of jokes yeah. for them, and really enjoyable. It's, again, it was writing for the people. This yeah. was you know the, the people's it, entertainment. Yeah, it had to entertain everybody. It had to be like long enough to fill the time and also have enough base jokes in it to get you laughing. Um, so I'm going to talk a little about my ass for a bit because I'm I'm my Shakespeare <laughs> knowledge is my teaching of it is very much the tragedies. That is that is my kind of like and my theory reading around it has been about Shakespeare as a tragedian. Um, so I'm not 
that up on the histories. But speaking roundly out of my ass, the way the histories are presented is it is him using, in the same way Macbeth does similarly, using historical tales very much as a way of getting in commentary about the time and using kind of like the kings of those time. It's about social events at this point. I don't know enough about the historical context of Richard III added on to the exact period it's written in. This is an early play for Shakespeare to really know that how much of it's got out of that. Also, Richard III is quite an early play. Um, this is technically a sequel to his three-parter of um, Henry VI. And right. actually, this Richard III version starts with the end of Henry VI. Um, so the actual Richard III doesn't begin with Richard III murdering Henry. That happens at the end of Henry VI, part three. But because that prologue is, is so important for this, because it is a direct sequel, um, we have that bit there, which is wild. In a 50-minute film, the first 10 minutes, it's just like, oh, this is not actually the play yet. Is it a sequel in the sense that it's like a? it was meant as like a literal continuation yes. of the play? Yeah, yeah. Or is, oh, okay. Because I figured it was just like a, well... That's what happened. That was the history. Well, I, so but, it's like, but they, but they but they connect directly. As in, like the very ending of Henry the Sixth Part Three is, and this is this thing, and this picks up with, and now we're dealing with the aftermath of that. So yes, they are sequels, as in they are historical, but it's very much this play leads directly into this one. It's very it's very interesting. Something I, I wish I knew a little bit more about because that's like some of the same things. Like I, I think about Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight and how he was like he basically just like picked out all of the parts from the corresponding plays that featured Falstaff yes. as a as a major character and then just created this new story from all of those texts yeah. you know that were all kind of successors to each other so it, interesting in that sense in that you know we we often talk about Richard III as this like singular piece but really it's you know it's in a wider context again this this may be the, the arse this may be me speaking but that so is my understanding Richard III as we'll link to in our conversation is also really important because Richard III has really shaped our historical understanding of Richard the Third. Yep. Ab the understanding yeah, this is what everyone thinks of. Comes comes you, from this play. Yeah, absolutely. This is how everyone learns about Richard first and foremost. E because evil this is conniving a very popular play. Is is the idea. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Very very much so. So how much do you know about like the actual Richard the Third? Like I assume they go over him in, in history class over there, but I I'm getting the sense from this conversation that I might know more about it. I'm sure you do. I, uh, medieval history, especially I'm the lines of kings and queens, it's just not a thing that really interests me. I love... The, the medieval period is, is fascinating to me, like, as a period of time. But I think more as, like, a, like, workers' struggle and conditions. Like, the, 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 the every person there is, is wanting to be more. And I love castles and, like, I love the, the, the aesthetic as shown to me of, of the medieval. But... Our lineage of kings and queens um, rarely interests me. It wasn't really a focus of my education in history class. Uh, I'm surprised they, they didn't make you memorize all the kings and queens. No, I had a ruler that I got as a, as a kid. It was a ruler, a ruler of rulers that was from. Like, I've heard um, about this. Yeah. I've heard about this ruler. Yeah, national trust ruler, and it's got all the, the kings. And I was, there was a king Stephen on it, and I like that. Um, yeah. No. I imagine it's kind of hard to quantify because it's like it's a bit of a messy lineage you guys got there. Well, it's the, a, the not, English not a very clear tree. <laughs> Like, as of the early 2000s, the English history curriculum was British Empire, never heard of it. Victorian, sir. Yep. That's a thing. Um, Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, suffragettes, suffragists. And there you go. So it was, it's World War I. Um, it's World War Two. Maybe a bit of, like, modern history, if you're lucky. And then some Tudors. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. So this is like, so, yeah, because Richard III is the last of these before the Tudors come yeah, in. Yeah, so... And 
take no, over. We, so, we, we like, were clearly a Henry VIII kind of school. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an interesting story in of itself. Hard, hard not to get interested in that one too. Yeah, it's, it's the, the sexy wild. history for the kids. You know, it's, it's very much being like right. Rich the Third. That's not going to interest them. Henry VIII. That's it. Well, I'll tell. I guess I'll tell you a bit more because yeah. I, th- I think Richard's history is interesting, and I'm, I'm surprised by how much of it is contained. Like it, it feels at least correct within the uh, Shakespeare's telling. Oh, the only other thing so, I know is that he's the car park king. I know he's the car park king. The car park king. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> he was his remains. For those that don't know, his remains were found in a car park. Yeah. So, uh, R- Richard uh, Plantagenet. I think that's how you say that. Yes, one, right? it is. Well done. I'm going to be actually. Listen, I know this, but I'm judging the British pronunciation the whole way through this. Um, there are some fun words to be said about counties um, later, which I'm very pleased. That was one of the easier ones. Richard yeah. Plantagenet. Plantagenet. He was the last of the Plantagenet kings. Uh, yeah. And he was the, the king of England from 1483 till 1485. Well so, pronounced. Very short. Cool. Yep. Uh, he His Machiavellian ascension to the throne has often mm. been an inspiration for sinister interpretations of his rule that's been sometimes contested but i think largely agreed upon that all of the things that he did he probably did uh including the dethroning and probable murder of uh the child king edward v but but maybe not as like openly and as like comically as in the shakespeare play yeah yeah that's that's the thing like it it appears that all of the things that happen in the shakespeare play pretty much gel with history just maybe not as explicitly like connivingly and this is condensed and then we're watching a 50 minute version that is condensed even more like the thing i know about the histories is that it takes the headlines of history and goes in three hours and you're like okay this was a busy reign yeah so it's it's very likely that he did all of the the scheming there but it was probably more like in terms of the the motivations were uh, i've seen a lot of different interpretations including like he had no options because you know he was kind of at the end of this rope of being targeted as well from other sides and like had to make these political decisions to kind of secure his, his own safety. And it's, you know, there's a bit of just fine going back and forth. I also know there's like a, there's a Richard the third society over there where they're like always working to kind of like clear his name. Be like, ah, he was a great dude. Great. You know, he clears Davis, you know, what, 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 uh, what princes, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So, yeah. So he ascended to the throne after, uh, Edward the fourth died. He was left, uh, in Edward's will that uh, Richard was to look over his young son as to, to be the regent. This is like, is it the protector of the realm role that he gets? I forget. Lord, the... Lord protector. Yeah. Is what, yeah. What, what they call him. So he's like basically a president elect basically. Yeah. <laughs> so he was, he was looking over the young King and it only took a couple months for him to say, to, to kind of start creating this rumor <laughs> that there was an Ill- illegitimacy in, in the, the, the king there in terms of his children. I believe uh, Edward the Fourth's legit, illegitimacy. Mm. So that was that was enough, and the rumor was enough going that they're like, well, we need to arrest the... Uh, because oh, I, I did skip over some history stuff, but there's the broader, <laughs> the important stuff anyway. So, yeah, he seized upon that opportunity, and they he locked him and his brother, also called Edward, in, nice. in the tower, the Tower of London, where they were never seen again. No, nobody knows that. <laughs> Interesting. Convenient. Yep. Yep. Nobody knows. They they found some children's bones later on. Yeah. In, I think it's 1674. Oh, I thought you uh, said place name. I was going to get really excited, but no. No, it was it was in it was in the tower. Uh, it was under the stairs at at the White Tower. They they found them there. They exhumed the bones after they were buried in 1933, and they were like, "Yeah, these are some children's bones." And also, 
There's some chicken bones in here and stuff. <laughs> Let's never speak of this again. Goodbye. Um. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, because people have been clamoring for, like, because when Richard's bones were found, they did extensive DNA testing, and they were like, yeah, this is 100% Richard III. Which was just made into a contested film. A film just came out last month about the mm. discovery of Richard III in a car park that I will say, as the husband of an archaeologist, archaeology Twitter was mad, was not happy <laughs> at all about that film. Ooh. Interesting. But yeah, there's there's been similar calls for retesting of the, the prince's bones, but... Yeah. Uh, that was not something that Queen Elizabeth was very interested in doing. Didn't want to approve for that. But but your boy Charles, he's, he's a little bit more interested. He's, yeah, he's into that. The Carolean period will be more into children's bones. Anyway, of course, as with any legitimacy crisis and kind of usurping of the throne there, uh, civil war inevitably breaks out under Richard's rule. And uh, the, he's, his rule is contested by yeah. the future Henry VII, who's hanging out in France. And he comes and invades England with an army, and they have a big fight called the Battle of Bosworth. Yep. And and Richard gets killed. Well there, pronounced. Battle. I mean, let's be honest. This is this is very much like a dry run for Macbeth, isn't it? Like, completely. This this is him being like, all oh, everything's good about this in terms of plotting and structure is just like, and then Macbeth does it properly. So this this is kind of like you know, baby's first Macbeth in a way that I enjoy. What's interesting is that a lot of what I just said there is, is basically the, the yeah, same yeah, broad yeah. strokes that's, that's of what happens in the play. There's there's no real significant changes. There's a little uh, bit of supernatural in the play, a little bit, that's not really in this film version. Yeah, what, is there something like the, the, the prophecy of G or... or yeah, or there's, there's a dream sequence at the end where he's haunted by his victims of those that he's killed. And the ghost of, I think, Henry VI does... I think does appear in the play. Maybe only in dream, but there is... There is an element of the supernatural, if only as used uh, you know, as a plot device. I'm inclined. Who's to say that the ghost of Henry VI didn't show up in, I mean, in real life? You know what? You're right, but still supernatural. I didn't say false. I just said the supernatural. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, uh, largely the the beats are the same. The the characters are all similar. There's, there's characters in the play like the the Lord of Buckingham and Tyrrell. Buckingham, uh, Buckingham, you know, Buckingham. We do it. We, it's, ah, okay. The, I'm sorry. With the G or without? Buckingham. Bu- Buckingham. I mean, if I'm going to um, use, if I'm going re- to lean into my actual accent from being down near Reading, then Buckingham. But Buckingham. Okay, Buckingham. okay, fair Buckingham. enough. I guess the one I, I should just get to the one I'm afraid of saying. Right? Is it is it Gloucester? R- Richard yes. Gloucester? Well done, yeah! Gloucester. Okay. You'd think it would be Gloucester because we have a lot of. I know. Ah, but, I, yeah, yeah, I look but, at it. It you know it was helpful because the title cards in, yeah, in the film they, they spell it they almost phonetically. Per- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because so. America. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so a n- number of characters, uh, including Buckingham and Tyrrell, you know, the ultimate yep. executioner there, who uh, was later penned as the, the person who killed the, the princess as well. But all of it is, it, it should be noted, is painted in the aftermath of all of this, you know, by the histories that were recorded yeah. in the wake of, of Richard's defeat. So a, a lot of, there's and there's a lot of theories going around. This is like, oh, who did, you know, kill, like the, the the princes especially, that's like the big conspiracy one that everyone hooks on. Everyone's, the, people are less concerned with, you know, the, the other killings that, that yeah. happened under R- Richard's rule there. But the, the princes is a real, real popular one, real in- intrigue there because there's a lot of mystery surrounding it and a lot of 
controversy. To invoke comparison again, I think that for me is why Richard III, even as a play, is not as interesting as Macbeth because it very much is about there is a singular evil force that is just evil and just evil and does evil things. Whereas later mm-hmm. Shakespeare plays are very much more about the psychology of evil. They're about like fallen people. They're about wider influences and nets of evil and like systems being evil. They like they do get into that. There is a little bit about not a huge amount. Whereas this is just yep. like here is the pantomime villain that does bad things, which is entertaining, but it is just. Oh uh, yeah. And the thing I go back to is to get my scholar's hat on. Um, John Keats, the romantic poet. The romantic poets are a big reason why we love Shakespeare now. Shakespeare was kind of like out of favour for a long time because the Enlightenment period, um, just before the romantic period, saw things are old and therefore are bad, was very much the idea. I'm simplifying here, but they were like, we. they believed they knew the most at that point, And that's where this Dark Ages myth came from. That's when the Dark Ages is an Enlightenment term. They were the Enlightenment, which therefore means what came before was the dark and a cultural desert because they were so smart. And then Romanticism is this reappraisal of these things with this like gothic eye and this like taking back. So Keats and Shelley and Byron were huge Shakespeare fans. And in the most celebrated poetry, like alludes to it throughout, like loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. But Keats coined this term called negative capability, which to put it very, very simply is the idea for something to be ambiguous and to be read in multiple ways that it can be good and it can be bad. And that's what Shakespeare's best plays have. That's why we can debate them, discuss them, and even find them problematic um, because there are bits in it being like Othello, for example, of Mm -hmm. the great enigma of Othello's character. And you're like, this play's pretty racist, but then it seems to be quite aware of that. But they're not aware of that thing. And it has these maybe not fully human characters, but there's a psychological depth to them. Rich the Bird has no negative capability. It's about the bad man that does the bad thing um, <laughs> to people that are ostensibly good. So that that key Shakespearean concept that evokes through his work as a tragedian um, is lacking in this text. Mm-hmm. The thing, though, is, is that it really does feel like the play for the masses, though, the populist one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. More, more than any other, like, it, you know, in terms of, like, if, I don't know, if you want to scale it from, like, entertainment to art, this is much more on the entertainment side, but not without the, the art side of it. But it, it really does feel like it's it's one that pulls you, like, the whole central idea of Shakespeare's Richard III, and that I think makes it so compelling and interesting, is how it manipulates that relationship with the audience by, by bringing them in, into it and making yeah. you an accomplice, essentially, of him through asides and direct audience addresses throughout. Yeah, um, and it, it opens with the, the winter of discontent thing, which, I, I mean, you've never been to Stratford-upon-Avon, but Stratford-upon-Avon is full of the best, like, and most cringy Shakespeare puns, and there is always a shop there offering discount tents. Um, it's either the winter or summer of discount tents, um, which always <laughs> always evokes a little chuckle. Stratford, oh. the, the shop fronts are always wonderful. So this is, correct me if I'm wrong, claimed to be by the AFI the first US American, as in American as in US, feature film. Yes, this is the oldest known, yeah. uh, as far as records go even, yes. American feature film, and also the oldest surviving. You know, it's, it's, it's managed to be both of those things. Yeah. When was it lost and how was it found? Uh, well, I mean, when was anything lost? No, okay, I don't I mean, know. I mean, when, when... I mean, yeah, when it was lost is a bad question. Um, tell me more about yeah, the, like, the, like, the, the like, 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 just they, they, they dropped it one day and then it was like, oh yeah, shit, no, that was the last one. <laughs> that was the last screening, guys. Close the cinema. It's like Goodbye Dragon Inn. There you go. We are closing the cinema. <laughs> oh. It was um, officially like Known to be found again in, in you got me going. Was it found in a car park? Notes. No, it was not found. In that car would park. be fun. Would have been a great, great echo, yeah, though, yeah, great yeah. story. No, it was uh, rediscovered in '96 when oh, a wow. uh, 
1996, when uh, William Buffman, a former projectionist at the Bluebird Theatre in Portland, Oregon... just finished showing Saturn Tango and thought, let's put something else on, because that was short. <laughs> yeah. He donated his copy to the American Film Institute in 96 when he was getting rid of his film, film collection. Uh, he stated he acquired it around 1960 in a wow. trade with another private collector. It's like Gremlins. Yeah, and so and, and it wasn't known until he donated it that there was no known surviving copies. Wow, that's so cool. He's just like, yeah, I've had this hanging around for a while. Yeah. It's just a Shakespeare play. And that he took probably... very good care of it was, was the thing. And he didn't know it was you know, a very important thing, but uh, every year he would rewind the, the five reels uh, of it, you know, to make sure it kept in good condition. Uh, at the time, the director of the AFI, Gene Furstenberg, likened its reappearance to the discovery of a Beethoven's Tenth Symphony oh, or cool. a lost Rembrandt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's 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 a lovely metaphor, simile, I guess. So yeah, so this therefore is clear, clear history of the American film industry. Then this is the first feature film. It's also the first Shakespeare adaptation, I believe. Cool, and we'll talk about that. Let's talk about feature film in quotes first. Feature film. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, what do you understand that to mean? So, a feature film is often defined a number of different ways. Yeah. You know, some people draw the line at 45 minutes, some people draw it at 60. Sometimes yeah. it's three reels or more, you know, four reels. Which uh, is becoming more and more arbitrary as the reels are not really a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's not really something that's measured nowadays. But the earliest known feature film came from Australia, and okay. actually it only survives in pieces. Uh, it was in 1906. It was called The Story of the Kelly Gang. Oh, interesting. So that is the earliest known feature film. And a story still the being told in feature film. There was a, yeah. interestingly, from a person that did an adaptation of Macbeth. So there you go, bring it back. Justin Curzel, True History of the Kelly Gang. I had to qualify. I'm sorry, I forgot my qualification. It's the earliest known narrative feature film. There were feature oh, films okay. back in the 1890s that were just, they were boxing exhibitions. Those were the first multi-reel films. You know, it was for entertainment purposes. They would film boxing matches and they'd show them to people. So how are we defining feature film then? How are we defining it? Or how are the AFI defining it when they're saying that the life and death of King Richard III is a feature film? Well, it's it's a feature film in terms of its uh, length. It's how we okay. define feature films. And it's again, it's defined in a couple different places. Some institutions will tell you 60 minutes. Some will tell you 45. Yeah. I personally, I tend to go with the 45 definition because that means Sherlock Jr. qualifies. Yes. But again, that's my really arbitrary designation of it there. So, <laughs> Is it one of those like, essence things of, you know, when you're watching one? Because, I mean, there is a different progression, there is a different structure, and I guess because this has got the plot structure of a long play, it is it is a feature, it is, it is telling this long-form story, it is interested in that. Are we accepting it? Are we saying it's a feature film? Do we agree? Yes. Okay, yeah, cool. this is a feature Good. film. It's, right, it's cool. Again, it's five, five reels, it's about an hour in length, yeah. and again, as I said, it's, it's considered the oldest American feature film. So. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. And now De definitely qualifies. you get it with a Ennio Morricone score, which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The score is incredible. And it, it, again, because what we keep saying is music lifts these because there are so many points where I'm just like, this is great because of the music. This is just really getting yep. toned down. I really watched the AFI version that you linked to me um, with the Morricone score. It's just really excellent. And that was commissioned with the restoration and discovery. Again, so why, cool. why the restoration work is so important to continue to do. Because again, we watch... We watch the films in different ways yeah. based on what we're, we're given, and it can really uplift a, a film in ways that, even at the time, you know, it make it better over time. Yeah. Um, so, Shakespeare adaptations, then. I mean, this, this interests me greatly, of this being such an early thing, because it seems to me, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, this seems to be a legitimizing statement of 
if we're seeing film as a thing to be taken seriously, this is the look we have Shakespeare of we are putting Shakespeare on film to show what cinema can do, to legitimise cinema, to show it as art, because Shakespeare, as we know, is shorthand for art. Yes. I think you're you're right on the money there because if if it weren't for one specific illusion, I don't think you could call this a Shakespeare adaptation directly. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise it's just yeah, the history. Very true. <laughs> um, There's one intertitle that goes over the, the G of Gloucester thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, specifically to the play and nothing else is yeah. related at all to the text. There's not a single other illusion hint towards it. It and all, all of the intertitles are just very, like, kind of informational. So There's no dialogue. Yeah. No no dialogue. No winter of our discontent. No right. my kingdom for a horse. None yeah. of the famous lines there are horses, at this whatsoever. Um, yes. Yeah, cool. Huge for me because there's so much I want to talk about here because this is so so fascinating of this non-Shakespeare Shakespeare play. Um, mm-hmm. But, oh, where to begin, where to begin, where to begin. Well, let's get, let's get one thing out of the way of the pernicious ableism um, that is obviously... Oh, yeah. In, yeah, that's something you got to get to. Yeah, obviously it's bad here because it's it's in the text. It's not as... It's also, it's also it should be said, not not true. That's an invented thing I believe yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> so yeah, that is... Yeah. There was like, maybe, maybe he had like a slightly higher shoulder than yeah. Richard, but definitely he was not a humpback, limping, you know arm deformed monster this is is a thing that i just go into so often of people being like things about shakespeare and they talk about being like you know that's just it's a reflection of perception so i'm like people like shakespeare created these perceptions through their popularity and through their impact of this kind of like these tropes are cemented they're not reflections of the time they are cemented through the time mm-hmm. um so yeah Ooh. and the idea i get from from the text is like this was something like this was the motivation that shakespeare wanted to create he needed a motivation to be vengeful yeah and, and angry and so like his idea to become king is in you know, as a retaliation of this curse that he's been given, yes. this physical deformity to overcome that, and and again, those those later Shakespeare plays are so good at inner turmoil. And this one just says, "It is outer turmoil." Yeah, it is. Well, when you get it, and again, like when you when you read the play or watch an adaptation, you're like, ah, "You don't really need that," because it's like, you know, the the desire for for hmm. power and you know evil is like works just as well. If yeah, it's not... such a perennial theme, um, such yeah. and such a clear Shakespearean theme. My my favorite adaptation, I'll say, because I watched a couple other adaptations again. Oh, to just make sure I was super familiar and to see a comparison. I love the 95 one, which is the Ian McKellen's adaptation. Do you a, know about Ian McKellen's Richard III? Uh, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's Ian McKellen doing Shakespeare. So most of the time, that's very, very good. Most of the time. Yeah, but the, but this one's special. This one's a little special okay. because it's, it is a interpretation of the text in an alternate timeline fascist England. Oh, cool. Okay, I, I, will, I should probably get around to that That's so cool what if richard the third but nazis basically nice okay fun fun fun, fun. so right. yeah yeah so like it, the, the opening sequence is like, the, like the battle to to get it, it's literally like a tank like like crashing through the beginning of and it's still all the same yeah there's, there's it's still all like the same text like at the end you cool. know he gives like they're they're trying to escape in the battle and the truck you know, like, like the truck they're on breaks down and he still says the my kingdom for a horse line. Yeah. It's I, great. Which, again, I, I'm I'm a defender of the Basil and Romeo and Juliet and I love the uh, the stylistic juxtaposition of dialogue and action is, is great. Because go back to what you were saying earlier, the more and more people realise that the dialogue of Shakespeare is performative in a wider sense and is impressionistic mm-hmm. and expressionistic. It is there to be poetic. And therefore, when you can diverge it from the actual 
mise-en-scene from actually what is happening in front of you, it really stands out that it is there as beautiful affectation. And those things that change the background and keep that dialogue get really, really interesting. Um, it's kind of like one of my things with the most recent, of my many things, the most recent tragedy of Macbeth, the, the singular Cohen one of it just seemed too caught up on that as opposed to being clever with it. Those are my favorite adaptations, the ones that really take it into a different direction mm. and make it particularly cinematic because I think when you make it cinematic, you are able to highlight the, yes. uh, the 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 text more so and how it's meant to be expressed as opposed to keeping Why it in this Throne very of blood strict. Is brilliant. Does Throne yeah. of Blood have the little dialogue of Shakespeare? No. Is it in the film throughout? Yes. I think like the visual compositions of Throne of Blood are imbued with the poetry of Shakespeare more than the Cohen Macbeth is. Mm-hmm. You you can do that. I mean, and that's why the rich the, this Richard the Third is so fast to me because it is, it is not a good cinematic expression. It is. No. It is like a not that great play. And occasionally there's more people in a screen than you'd see. And occasionally you get like a wider shot than you'd get. And occasionally there's a horse. And occasionally there's an army. But I'm like, if you're going to legitimise that cinema can bring scope and impact and take the bard's words off of the... I mean, or which one is it? Which play... Is it Henry V? The... That wonderful adaptation that starts on the stage and then Yeah, yeah that's Olivier's... Olivier is the one that was made during the war. And that is so brilliant. That's such a great cinematic statement being like, this is then Shakespeare, and now cinema can do this. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm here. And this Richard III does, does not do that. I mean, the camera setups are no. quite nice. It does a good job of framing, like, the blocking is good. Like, I really well, it's, like... It's really interesting because I think this is a really good example of how far the medium has progressed mm. in terms of storytelling and framing because it does not feel... Like, we are locked down on a single perspective. There's no, no, like, really long, you know, single scene takes. The continuity you know, editing is really, really good. There are some really nice, like, he walks towards something, and then we cut very seamlessly to the outside and back. There is some really nice, just, like, A follows B follows C continuity editing in this. Yep. There's shot variants, you know, and it's not, like, just dead on all the time. Again, which is interesting, especially for a, an adaptation of a play, because yes. it's... Again, even so much later, so easy to take that route, you know. And and I think about like again the the Olivier adaptation of Richard the Third, which I was also watching, and it's just like how much more stagey it feels okay. in comparison, despite the big budget, despite the the Technicolor and the Vista Vision, like it, it and it feels so this, big to me still. That this doesn't feel stagey. It feels like LARPing is my problem. It feels like yeah. it feels like they're doing a little like live action role play Amdram thing. It's not it's not staging like it's just the globe up on the screen. It is a different kind of so yeah, it, it is community theatre. It is we're going for a LARP. Um it is so mm-hmm. yeah, live action role playing for the for the non-nerds. I apologize. Um But yeah, I do find it interesting in terms of how it's like, oh you can really see this is a film. It feels like mm. a film as as opposed to, you know, even if it's not cinematic, actors. it's not filmic in expression. But I do like some of the way that it uses cinematic space. I do like that often we have Richard as like at the edge of a scene or hiding behind a pillar, the best bit. My two mm. favourite parts of the movie, which are in my notes, are the wooing scenes. The wooing, the first <laughs> wooing scene, it's and we need to talk about the, the intertitles because the intertitles are so good. It's just like Richard woos someone. And yep. what he does <laughs> literally is step out of the wooing bush and brings her back yeah. into the wooing bush. <laughs> He's like, yep. it's, it's so great. And then later he woos someone else and there is still like a bush in the background. So yeah, that's how Richard woos is he takes you in and out of the wooing bush and it's just so playfully stupid. I really, really mm-hmm. enjoyed that. Um, oh. I do feel like unfortunately because of the, the nature of it and being more, again, like 
cinematic in a sense. It does lose a lot of the appeal of the the play though because we don't get that audience interaction anymore. No. There's there's no asides to the camera which other adaptations do later do. They embrace that, you know, that connection through the screen and they still they break I think the, there's such the a, sh- a like shooting of that because that scene is so theatrical like the soliloquy is is ditched in some adaptations because the, the my understanding of a soliloquy really is because of the limitations of early modern theater you need to externalize things in a way that you cannot do through set dressing and through performance and you need mm-hmm. to give your character way in and we don't need to do that as much anymore and the the more interesting Shakespeare adaptations find clever things to do with soliloquies as opposed to just hello i'm talking to the audience for a while but i do not think the right route is just to get rid of them entirely well, especially when the whole identity of the play is really like wrapped around that, like, and Richard the Third is based on the idea of like an aside and talking directly to the audience, maybe more than any other play mm. I can think of. And so to eschew that entirely, I'm like, is is this even Richard the Third I mean, anymore? It's not though, is it? Yeah, this this is not Shakespeare's Richard the Third. Was that the film director at the beginning and end that bowed? I don't. So awesome. You know, that's a good question. Absolutely I don't know. I, I didn't get... I couldn't find the information specifically on who that was because they don't introduce him through the intertitles. But again, that seems like a theatrical carryover, doesn't it? Of being like, this is this is the person behind the film and because at the end of the play, the people would bow. That's, it's such a weird affect. I really enjoyed it, though. I don't know. Because they, they, they do that sometimes in silent films. Some, it's, it's weird. Like, there's... Oh, theatrical carryover. Because it's, it's, this is still, as you said so eloquently in the first episode... Like, the DNA of theatre is still very much in the expression of silent film. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Here it is. Um, there's a... Uh, another that might come up. Um, there's a film called The Lost World, which is based upon... I've seen that. It's a Jurassic Park film. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like, this is where it gets its name from. It's from uh, based on an Arthur Conan Doyle uh, book. And he's in the movie. He's in the introduction of it. You know, he kind of introduces it, like, writing the book and stuff. Um, but it is a dinosaur movie. Is that the Carol, is that the <laughs> Carol Zeman with... one? Nope. Nope. This, Before this, Carl Zeman? Oh, there's, 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 there, is, there is a Carol Zeman um, dinosaur movie. Yeah, it's, it's called Journey Journey to the Beginning of Time. That's it. That's of. it. Oh. But yeah, no, this this is a an early stop motion film done by the same uh, oh. team that would go on to do King Kong. Oh. Ah. So, very interesting. Very very uh, oh, worth checking out. But yeah, it's got, it's got an introductory scene. Cinema, with... King Kong. <laughs> I mean, it's Lost World's definitely in that legacy too. <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, I, I I say more bush wooing and less racism in films. Um, Fair enough. I, yeah, that, so the, the it, that is very funny. Uh, the the bush wooing, I, I agree with you there. I but that. I I I do lament the loss of the language. Still, you know, that's the mm. uh, the 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 bedchamber line as well is kind of in there. That that cheeky bit that I yeah, like. the loss of language is, is is for me the interesting bit because this makes this inarguably and quite hilariously, the most accessible Shakespeare text of all time. <laughs> if you just want to understand a Shakespeare story, this is... In, in this country, we have these things, we have these revision guides, and CGP are this publisher. I don't know what it stands for. Something, it's like children, something something stupid, because they, they like to be like jokey, down with the kids stuff. And they publish these revision guides, and the back of them, they'd have like a comic. So it'd be like, here's Romeo and Juliet, but a comic. This movie is that. This is the mm-hmm. school kid is studying Richard III and needs to just bone up on Richard III in 50 minutes and doesn't really have time. So they pop down to, you know, the the place that's just showing it, on a, a travelling player maybe, and bam, they get 50 minutes spark notes, Richard III. Yeah, it really is the broad, it really is just like the broad details of the things that happened in the Richard III narrative. Yeah. 
but even so like it's it's condensed to a point where it cuts out some things mm-hmm. like w- one of the big things i was kind of like uh y- you forgot to mention like the illegitimacy plot like the sequences are just like it's you know edward v he's he's being recognized as king and then the very next scene is like oh richard's sending out the lord to dispatch of him you know they're getting rid of him already and, and no information in between as to why well, it's yeah, just I... here king and now he's gone it's because I think you did what I did, which is what I always do before going for a Shakespeare play that I'm not overly familiar with. Before going to any Shakespeare play, you read out the plot first because working out the plot is not the point of this. It is how it is expressed and it's like getting to yep. bask in like the poetry and the expression of it. And then I was just like, man, I wasted my time looking at the plot from this movie because it just tells it to you directly. This is just exposition, exposition, exposition. It's fun though. Yeah. I like that there are horses it's... and boats in it. Horses and boats. Yep. Fun to see from the past. Um, I presume you've not seen Bellatar's Macbeth? No, not that Macbeth. A number um, of other ones, but not that one. Bellatar's Macbeth is a nice comparison point to this because it's also about 50 minutes long. So it, it does that thing of taking a Shakespeare play and condensing it down. Bellatar's Macbeth is... I, I absolutely adore it. It's so hard to find. Um, you can find it quite easily, but not with English subtitles. And it is Hungarian, but mm. I really recommend it. Why it's so cool is is a 50-minute film, maybe about an hour, but, but about that. And it is in two shots. The first shot is about four minutes. And then it's the rest of it. Which sounds like theatre. But it's so cinematic. Because what the camera does. Is it sticks to Macbeth's perspective the entire time. And it shifts the play brilliantly. And that's why it's so short. Because if Macbeth doesn't see the thing. You don't see the thing. So all this stuff. You don't get the out damn spot. No. and Because because it knows that you know that. And it's not interesting in giving that to you again. It shows... A really unique experience, which is, what is Macbeth from Macbeth's point of view? And it's so confusing and bewildering, and it, it, it makes you understand that character more. It's, it's a really interesting choice, because you do feel locked in the madness with him. It's really, really cool. This is not that, unfortunately. This is just no. a bullet point, bam, 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 bam. Though, Richard is yeah. very ever-present in this. Yeah, I, I think I just, I lament the loss of so many of the things that make me really compelled by Richard III in particular. Yeah. You know, the, the political intrigue, the character motivation, of course, the, the language, the, the conniving, it's all very condensed, very, you know, like like taking away the, the actual characterization more so. They're, they really are just like figures and then you know we're told about them in a broad sense through the intertitles it's like we're, we're entirely reliant on the actors performances to get their sense of character and sometimes they are very exaggerated but i, I don't think that's inappropriate i'm gonna risk because, sounding again, elitist very... here um, okay and this reminds me so i i ran a, a cpd session recently hypothetically at a workplace and i was talking about literacy in the curriculum and about like presenting students with texts and i was like what we need to make sure we're not doing is that texts are too challenging for our students because then they are inaccessible and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But maybe what's more dangerous is texts that aren't challenging enough. And education professionals often pare things down to make it explainable in a way that actually takes away things. And this is very accessible with a lowercase a Shakespeare, that sense of anyone who thinks they don't understand Shakespeare can understand this. But then at the same time, you're like, but then the beauty is gone, and then the, like you, you've taken away the bits that make it interesting, and it's better to have trust that your audience can engage. Again, to go back to Keats, there's a great Keats quote of being like, I forget the exact exact thing, but the, the idea is that when you've explained the waterfalls and the rainbows, you rob them of beauty. So sometimes mm-hmm. that kind of like, that bit of challenge, that bit of ineffability is where joy is. 
And this ultra simple Shakespeare is quite appealing to me because it is just like, look, it's accessible, but you're not going to convert people to this. The Baz Luhrmann, I'm going to defend again, is such a great Shakespeare <laughs> adaptation because it goes, this is sexy and fun, but we're not going to dumb it down. We're going to show through action what the lines mean. And that's how it goes. So that for me is the perfect thing of being like, it is more accessible, but it's still challenging. Whereas this has just been like, eh, there you go. This happens in the scene. And similarly, I'll stand by the Ian McKellen, Richard III as well, as like a really great example of what's so interesting and what's so magnetic about the, the, the story, I think. And, you know, kind of being in on this Machiavellian, you know, mm. plot of climbing your way to the top and murdering everyone who's in, in the way there and kind of plodding along. That's, you know, part of the will be fun, like we said, of, yeah. uh, of, of Richard III yeah, as yeah, material. Yeah. And because this has none of that, it's just the broad narrative aspects, you know, the the slight bits of political intrigue that you're gleaning. And, like you know, you got the bit of the wooing and stuff, and that's that's all fun elements. But as far as, like, the actual characterizations and motivations, you know, the, the political aspects of it, I think, more so that pull me in personally, it's it's not here. So that is lost. But you're right, in, in the condensing of it and the making more accessible, it helps penetrate that first barrier that maybe uh, a handful of people you know or not not a handful of people but, but people may struggle with initially but I, I think as to our point there are also other texts that mm -hmm. don't take away the poetry yeah that also provide that entry point yeah i but still i think as as an interesting piece of film history and as a quirky fun and not really fully formed Shakespeare adaptation I had a really fun time in this film it was it was so eminently watchable it is so campy and silly in the ways that things aren't usually campy and silly I would really yeah. recommend to watch it it's really really fun and I love the over-the-top dramatical acting um it's just mm -hmm. it's just a joy I really like it I think it's very enjoyable I think it's very again interesting is like and also to see again from a I, I don't think we touched on this necessarily enough but as an as an American adaptation as an, yeah. a piece of American history again we, we talked about it, how they, they miss spelling of his name. Oh, it plays into stereotypes. If you go the... to dumb things down, this is just like, let's take the use out of these words. There you go. This is... Yeah. And what's this, what's this odd C doing in here? That's just confusing. Get it out of here. Such yep. a great metaphor for the film itself, though, of being like, this This is basically Perfect. taking the use out of Shakespeare. This is what this is. That's, that's a great way of putting it. Put that on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, very interesting as a as a historical piece, mm. you know, and also contextualizing, uh, like we said, the legitimizing of film as a medium through adaptations, you know, like like this early stage of doing that here. And very, very good to have it. Again, an interesting story of how it was found just, you know, by a, a private collector who didn't even know what he had and yeah. submitting it for preservation. I, yeah, I, this was a film that I would have never got around to, so I'm so very, very glad to have found it this way. So, thank you so much. What is our next film, David? Our next film, which will be the last for the year, then we'll go on a bit of a hiatus, is going to be 1922's The Toll of the Sea, which mm. is the... Is that about Godzilla? Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's an interpretation of the Madame Butterfly story. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm watching M. Butterfly this week, then. Um, that is uh, the oldest surviving technicolor feature oh, wow okay. so we will be talking about color in film quite a lot next week and you, all right if you want to make your bingo cards now you can note down how many times will steven mention jacques Demy? get that down in your bingo cards now <laughs> <laughs> will he mention agnes vardas le Bonheur as well there you go you can get that down things that you know steven's going to mention Yes, I, mm -hmm. I know I know who I am, and I will always say those things. So, thank you um, for joining me, as always, David, and thank you so much for joining us wherever you are listening to us. Now, take a pause, 
Look Around You. Look Around You. You ever watched that TV show, David, Look Around You? No. No, I haven't. Yeah, that's that's very British. There you go. If I watch something very British, watch Look <laughs> Around You. That's like ultra British. So when you're looking around you, get down to that cellar, get up in that attic, look for your private film collection and be like, has anyone else heard of this film? Is this maybe the earliest surviving feature film of my nation? <laughs> Double check for that one, please. And then when you're reporting them, please report them to us as well. But please report us to the world. Tell your friends loudly about silent cinema. Until next time, we will keep evangelizing, evangelizing loudly in the streets the loudest most beautiful cinema thank you david thank you stephen